0: From the authors of Author Masterminds, this is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature, and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. George Mallory once said, I climb mountains because they are there. Mallory died climbing Mount Everest in 1924, and his body wasn't found for 75 years. George Mallory represents both the passion and the danger for those who climb mountains. On July 18, 1967, a catastrophic snowstorm pummeled Alaska's Mount Denali, killing seven of the 12 young men in the Wilcox expedition attempting to reach the summit. This is still the worst climbing disaster ever to occur in the United States. We will never know what happened at the top of Mount Denali. Experts can only guess the fate of those seven unlucky climbers. Hello. Welcome to Mysterious. My name is Robin Bearfield. I'm an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I will be your host for this episode. Mount Denali soars 20,320 feet, making it the tallest mountain in North America. In 2015, the mountain's name was officially changed from McKinley to Denali. It's Koyukun Athabasca name. The mountain sits on a low plateau of only 2,000 feet above sea level, and it rises 18,000 feet above its base. As a result, Denali offers one of the longest base-to-summit climbs of any mountain on the planet. In comparison, Mount Everest is 29,029 feet tall, but climbers begin their ascent at a base of 17,000 feet, The climb up Denali is 6,000 feet further than the climb up Everest. About 50% of those who climb Denali reach the summit. The challenge in climbing the mountain is not its technical difficulty or the altitude, although both contribute. The main issue on Denali is the weather. Denali sits at a latitude of 63 degrees north. In comparison, Everest lies at 28 degrees north latitude, the same parallel as central Florida. Storm systems move faster and are stronger at higher latitudes, and of course the temperature is colder in the far north. Also, Denali sits only 200 miles from the Gulf of Alaska and 400 miles from the Bering Sea. Intense low-pressure systems form in the Gulf and the Bering Sea, subjecting the mountain to powerful storms that can burst out of nowhere. The summit of Denali creates its own weather, producing violent storms. These storms sometimes last for days and are impossible to predict. Mountaineers familiar with Denali and its moods observe the cloud formations and know to rush to the summit in good weather and then quickly climb down to a safe altitude before the next storm forms. Unfortunately, none of the members of the Wilcox party had previously climbed Denali. They had to depend on common sense and luck. In 1913, the first team of climbers successfully made it to the summit of Denali. In 1967, when the Wilcox Expedition set out to scale the mountain, only 213 people had reached Denali's peak. Joe Wilcox, an experienced climber, was a graduate student in mathematics when he decided he wanted to form a group to climb Denali. At first, he struggled to find climbers interested in his expedition. But then Jerry Clark and Mark McLaughlin joined his team. Both young men were experienced alpinists and had ascended several mountains. Clark had been climbing for 14 years and had more experience than Wilcox. Clark also had a more engaging personality than Wilcox, so Clark helped recruit climbers for the expedition. While Clark knew most of the young men who signed on to join the expedition, they were strangers to Wilcox. The group lacked time to train together before their ascent, but once they were on the mountain and began shuttling supplies from one camp to another, they learned to work together and trust each other. The Wilcox Party consisted of nine young men with varied climbing experience. When Joe applied for the permit to climb the mountain, the Park Service hesitated, expressing concern that the group did not have enough high-altitude experience to climb Denali. Chief Ranger Art Hayes suggested the Wilcox Group combine with another smaller but stronger team of four climbers from Colorado. The Colorado contingent had much more climbing experience. At first, the two teams refused to merge, but when one of the members of the Colorado expedition suffered injuries in a car crash and had to withdraw from the climb, the Coloradoans had to either join the Wilcox Group or go home. The Park Service required each group to consist of at least four members. The two teams agreed to ascend together, but they kept their supplies separate, ate and slept apart, and never grew into a cohesive entity. The members of the original Wilcox Expedition were Joe Wilcox, Steve Taylor, Mark McLaughlin, Jerry Clark, Angel Schiff, Hank Janes, Dennis hand Walt Taylor, and John Russell. The Colorado team consisted of Howard Snyder, Paul Schlichter, and Jerry Lewis. Joe Wilcox was 24 years old when his group climbed an alley, and the rest of the team ranged in age from 22 to 31 years of age. These were all serious young men. Several held or were working on advanced college degrees, including engineering, physics, geology and medicine. Before their expedition began, most of the team traveled to Mount Rainier in Washington State to practice techniques such as crevasse rescues. When they finished their training, Dennis Luchterhan got Joe Wilcox aside and told him he was pulling out of the expedition. He said he couldn't shake the feeling that there would be problems on the climb and something would go wrong. Wilcox told Luchterhan to think about his decision for a while. And by the following day, Luchterhan had changed his mind and was ready to drive north with the others. Unfortunately, as it turned out, he should have listened to his inner voice and returned home. The first meeting between the Wilcox team and the Colorado group proved contentious, but they ironed out their problems and formed a written agreement outlining the duties of each member of the group. The next morning, the entire Wilcox expedition began the drive north to Alaska and Mount Denali. The group stopped at Eielson Visitor Center in Denali National Park to discuss radio communication with the rangers. The Wilcox Expedition would be the first team to carry CB radios to the summit to communicate with the park rangers at the base. Jerry Clark oversaw the radios, so he discussed a communication schedule with the rangers. Next, the group drove to Wonder Lake and met District Ranger Wayne Mary. As the party spent their last day at the base of the mountain, Joe Wilcox seemed troubled. He told his group, we seem to be a loose collection of individuals climbing the mountain separately. He said that their success depended on their ability to work together. The Wilcox expedition planned to follow the Muldrow Glacier route up the mountain. It was a more challenging and longer path than the more popular West Buttress route on the other side of the mountain. But to follow the West Buttress route, climbers had to pay a great deal to fly themselves and their gear to a base camp at 7,400 feet. The members of the Wilcox expedition could not afford such a luxury. They would start from the base and navigate the ice blocks and crevasses of the glacier. By 1967, four men had died on Denali. Three of the four perished while climbing the Muldrow Glacier. Two fell into crevasses, and the third fell while descending Karsten's Ridge at the top of the glacier. Wilcox and his comrades knew they had chosen a difficult and potentially deadly path. The group set up Camp 1 at the top of Magongle Pass. Moving their supplies up the mountain required numerous trips between the various camps by each group member so they could cache their food and equipment. They set up Camp 2, close to the base of the lower icefall, at 6,500 feet. While the men shuttled supplies between the camps, John Russell's temper flared several times, and once he stormed up to Joe Wilcox and told him he was leaving the expedition. Wilcox soothed Russell's anger and convinced him to stay, but Russell gained a reputation in the group as a hothead. The group moved slowly up the mountain, and Wilcox shuffled the rope teams to give everyone a chance to work together and foster an atmosphere of teamwork and camaraderie. The men experienced two terrifying moments on the lower icefall above McGongle Pass. As they debated whether to scale the left or right side of the glacier, a massive avalanche roared down the left side of the fall, terrifying the men, but making their decision easy they headed up the right side. While climbing up the fall, Jerry Lewis suddenly disappeared into a large crevasse. Howard Snyder, who was behind him, drove his axe into the ice to stop Lewis's fall, and the team worked together to pull Lewis out of the crevasse. The climbers established Camp 3 at 8,100 feet. On the 4th of July, the men took a group photo. Then they headed for Camp 4 at 11,000 feet. The climb between Camp 4 and Camp 5 required the men to traverse a narrow ridge with deadly drop-offs on either side. Between Camp 5 and Camp 6, they climbed up Carstens Ridge, the most brutal stretch of their route. The ridge rose 4,000 feet over two miles. As they progressed, Anshul's Schiff began to feel poorly and grow weaker. He was not able to carry as much as the other men, but he continued to climb. John Russell confronted Schiff about carrying light loads, but Schiff did not respond. Others in the group told Schiff it was okay if he took lighter loads. Schiff had chronic indigestion, which worsened as they climbed. He ate little, and what he did eat, his body could not digest. When climbing a mountain like Denali, it is essential to consume at least twice as many calories as usual to meet the physical demands, the low oxygen, and the frigid temperatures. Schiff could not afford to fast during the ascent. The men made it up Karsten's Ridge and established Camp 6 at 15,000 feet. They now began to face the effects of high altitude and thin air. But they only had to set up one more camp before heading to the summit. They were excited about reaching the goal, but they knew this was the most dangerous part of the climb. The weather could change within minutes, producing whiteout conditions and high winds. High-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE, and high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, became real threats. Both conditions could prove fatal if the climber did not rapidly descend to a lower altitude. Joe Wilcox believed Angel Schiff and Steve Taylor were already exhibiting symptoms of high-altitude sickness. As the days passed, John Russell, Jerry Lewis, Jerry Clark, and Joe Wilcox all began to lose weight and exhibit signs of exhaustion. On Thursday, July 13th, Jerry Clark talked to the Eilson Visitor Center by radio and learned the forecast was good for the next two days. A high-pressure system had settled over the mountain and surrounding area. Clear, cool, calm weather prevailed, and Joe Wilcox believed they should dash to the summit while they had favorable conditions. Others in the group disagreed. McLaughlin thought they were climbing too fast and thought they should establish an intermediate camp at 16,500 feet. Luke Durhan said hurrying to the summit without hauling up more food and supplies to a high camp would leave them without enough food if a storm caught them by surprise. The men finally decided that most of the group would head up the next day with food and supplies and establish Camp 7 at approximately 18,000 feet. Walt Taylor and Steve Taylor, Angel Schiff, and John Russell would remain low for another day and then haul enough food for six days up to Camp 7. The first group would continue to the summit on July 15th, and the other four men would climb to the peak on Sunday, July 16th. Let me pause for a moment and tell you a little about me and my books. I write Alaska wilderness mystery novels and Alaska true crime. My latest book is a collection of true crime stories and mysterious disappearances from Alaska. I also write a free monthly newsletter on true crime in Alaska. And I have a podcast called Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or find the link as well as more information about me and my books in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Author Masterminds and the Readers and Writers Book Club. The first eight men began climbing to the high camp on July 14th. They carried only the essentials they would need for a few days and ascended the Harper Glacier. They found a place to camp at 17,900 feet. The camping spot offered little protection from the snow and wind, but there was no place to hide from the elements at this elevation. Dennis Luchterhan felt sick and weak as they climbed. He vomited several times and withdrew to his tent soon after they arrived at Camp 7. Snow began falling before the climbers crawled into their sleeping bags, but a radio relay through the lower camp from the park rangers encouraged them. The rangers hadn't received a weather report for the day, but they told the climbers the barometer was rising, and a rising barometer usually meant good weather. In 1967, no meteorologist knew how to forecast the weather on top of Denali. The summit of the Great Mountain often spawns its own weather conditions. Clouds can form in a matter of minutes, producing blizzard conditions, while the weather remains sunny and calm at the base. In 1967, climbers depended on reports from others on the mountain and their own experience with cloud formations near and above Denali. Unfortunately, none of the men in the Wilcox expedition had ever climbed Denali before and they were not familiar with how storms formed near the summit. That night, a 40-mile-per-hour wind pummeled the men high on the mountain in Camp 7, and they awoke to dark clouds and blowing snow. By late morning, though, the wind had calmed and the sky cleared. Half of the group prepared to head to the summit. When three from the original Colorado group, Jerry Lewis, Paul Schlichter, and Howard Snyder, as well as group leader Joe Wilcox, were ready to leave, Snyder called to Jerry Clark and asked if he and the other guys were going to the top. Clark replied, "'Nah, we're just going to sit here and watch the snow blow.'" Snyder said Clark's answer surprised him at the time, but then he decided that Clark, Janes, Luchterhan, and McLaughlin probably wanted to wait for their friends from the lower camp to arrive so they could all summit together. Some of the men in the lower camp were weaker climbers than Clark, so maybe he wanted to help them get to the top. His fateful decision turned out to be tragic, and in the aftermath of the disaster, many blamed group leader Joe Wilcox for heading to the summit without the others. The men who survived think it is wrong to blame Wilcox. If he had been with the second group, he too would have perished. Wilcox could not have stopped the colliding forces of nature from bearing down on Denali. At 6.30 p.m., the four climbers radioed Eilson Visitor Center to report they had reached the summit. They described the beautiful view and cloudless sky above the peak. They spent an hour and a half on the top and then descended for two hours to Camp 7, The men were tired, but okay. Just as Wilcox and his group arrived at the high camp from above, Anshul Schiff, Steve Taylor, Walt Taylor, and John Russell approached Camp seven from below. This group was not in good shape, and John Russell was so sick that the other men had to carry his load. July sixteenth dawned gray and ugly. Seventy mile per hour winds roared through the camp, and the snow blew. Dennis Luke began to feel better, but John Russell was too sick to eat. On July 17th, the weather improved and the wind calmed. The men who had already summited prepared to head down to Camp 6. Jerry Lewis exhibited signs of severe altitude sickness, so he needed to descend to a lower altitude. Steve Taylor and Angel Schiff were also ill, and John Russell continued to weaken. Russell refused to descend with Wilcox and his group, but Schiff immediately agreed to return to Camp 6. His decision saved his life. Wilcox, Lewis, Snyder, Schlichter, and Schiff headed down to Camp 6, but the group planning to climb to the summit seemed in no hurry to leave Camp 7. The descending group could see the high group and they watched in dismay as the men collected gear and loaded their packs. They planned to race to the top and then descend back to Camp 7. They only needed enough gear for a quick trip. Wilcox and his group watched the others finally leave camp at 3 p.m. and head toward the summit. At 8.30 p.m., Jerry Clark called the Isleson Visitor Center and talked to a ranger. Clark said the group was 45 minutes to an hour from the summit. At 9.30 p.m., Clark again called the ranger and said they had a serious problem. He said the visibility was poor and they'd lost track of the wands the first climbers planted to mark the path to the summit. Clark said, Well, this route is not well wanted at all. We've lost the wands. We're just foundering around. We don't know whether we're on the summit ridge or not. We don't know whether the summit ridge is supposed to be wanted or not, and uh, we just thought we'd check it out. We think we're pretty close to the summit, but uh, we can't tell. Clark wanted to talk to Joe Wilcox to get some direction, but neither Clark nor the ranger could raise Wilcox on the radio. Clark sounded garbled, and the ranger worried his batteries were getting cold. At 11 p.m., Clark tried to call again, but he couldn't transmit. Then, at 11.30 a.m. the following morning, Jerry Clark calmly called the Isleson Visitor Center. He said they were on the summit and would be heading down soon. McLaughlin wanted to talk to the ranger, and Ranger Haber asked him to describe what he saw. He said they were in whiteout conditions, and all he could see were four other guys. Haber asked him who was with him at the top of the mountain, and he said the men on the summit were Jerry Clark, Hank Janes, Dennis Lukterhand, Walt Taylor, and Mark McLaughlin. Haber asked McLaughlin what happened to the seventh man, and he said Steve Taylor was sick, so he stayed at Camp 7. McLaughlin did not mention John Russell. Where was he? McLaughlin did not name Russell as one of the men who had made it to the summit, and he also didn't say Russell stayed in camp with Taylor. McLaughlin told Haber they would call again at 8 p.m., but the rangers never received another call from the men, either in or above Camp 7. Around noon on July 18th, approximately one half hour after Jerry Clark and Mark McLaughlin spoke with Ranger Haber on the radio, meteorological forces clashed over Denali, producing a perfect storm. A counterclockwise-spinning, low-pressure system approached from the north, creating warm, wet wind, while a sizable high-pressure system remained stationary over the Alaska Range. The high-pressure system packed cold, dry air and rotated in a clockwise direction. A cloud cap formed over the summit, and a strong, snow-filled wind barreled down the mountain. At 15,000 feet, the Wilcox party reported violent wind, but what they experienced would be nothing compared to the weather on the exposed Summit Ridge. The Summit party carried one sleeping bag for every two men, but there was no place to seek shelter, and the storm hit so quickly they had little time to protect themselves. Steve Taylor was in slightly better shape at High Camp, where he had a tent. Was John Russell also at high camp? No one would ever know. Joe Wilcox and the group at Camp 6 waited nervously. They believed something happened to the summit group's radio or battery, explaining why they missed the evening radio schedule. Joe and his group thought the rest of their party were now in Camp 7, hunkered down and waiting for the storm to subside. As soon as conditions improved, they expected the group from Camp 7 to descend to Camp 6, and then they all could head down the mountain. On July 19th, the storm continued unabated, and still there was no word from the high camp. On July 20th, Snyder, Schlichter, and Wilcox attempted to climb up to Camp 7, but the deep snow and high headwind forced them to turn around. Wilcox radioed the park rangers and expressed his concern for the seven climbers in his party. If they were at Camp 7, then they would be getting low on food and fuel. Wilcox made a request for a pilot to airdrop a radio and other critical supplies for those in the high camp. Unfortunately, the high winds near the peak of the mountain made flying there extremely dangerous. On July twenty-first, the storm worsened. At Camp 6, the men estimated the wind speed at 70 miles per hour. A man could not stand upright outside his tent, and breathing became extremely difficult. Other climbing parties on the mountain hunkered down and waited for conditions to improve. Finally, on July 22, the snow stopped, and the wind began to subside. By now, Lewis was critically ill, and Schiff and Wilcox were weak. They had to tell the rangers that they could not climb back up to high camp and needed to get down the mountain. Schlichter and Snyder worried about how they would get the other three men down to safety. The descent proved painfully slow for the five climbers. Jerry Lewis kept collapsing. Schiff complained of dizziness, and Wilcox could barely move his hands. As they descended the steep Karstens Ridge, they spotted the tents of the Mountaineering Club of Alaska, or the MCA, Expedition at 12,100 feet. The expedition members met Wilcox and the others on the ridge and gave them food and water. They then helped them down to their camp. Wilcox again requested a flyover of the high camp, but the wind returned. On July 25th, it calmed down enough for pilot Don Sheldon to attempt to fly over. Unfortunately, though, a cap of clouds obscured the peak in the high camp. The park superintendent asked the MCA expedition if they would proceed up the mountain as quickly as possible to check on the welfare of the missing climbers. On July 27th, the peak of Denali gleamed in the sunlight. Don Sheldon flew around the summit and upper part of the mountain, but he saw no missing climbers. On July 28, the MCA climbers reached the Wilcox Expedition's Camp 6. At 5 p.m., one of the climbers spotted a Stubai ice axe the brand Steve Taylor had carried. The axe lay on the hard-packed snow a mile below Camp 7. A quarter of a mile later, They discovered a handmade flag constructed by John Russell. Next to the flag, they found a sleeping bag covered by an Alpine hut red shell. All the shell contained was a pair of wool socks and some down booties. Next to the tent, a deadly crevasse opened into the mountain. The MCA members believed someone had fallen into the crevasse. Finally, the MCA expedition reached Camp 7. They heard nothing as they neared the camp. There was no movement and no sign of people. Then they saw Mark McLaughlin's homemade tent still standing. Next to the tent, they encountered a corpse, sitting upright, holding onto the tent pole. The frozen man wore orange. His face and hands were blue, green, and white. The hands appeared frozen, yet they were decomposing. Snow covered the man's face, and the smell of decomposition overwhelmed the MCA climbers. Unfortunately, the climbers were so sickened by their discovery and the body's condition that they didn't think to take more photos of the corpse to allow his friends and family to identify him. Bill Babcock with the MCA expedition called the rangers to report what they had found. The rangers asked Babcock if he and his fellow climbers would agree to stay on the mountain and search for the others. The rangers said they would airdrop food, sleeping bags, and heavy-duty tents to the party. Babcock said his group planned to head for the summit the following day and search along the way, but they would not remain for an extended search. He told the ranger that they all needed to return to their jobs. The next afternoon, Babcock and his party reached the summit. Soon after they started down, pilot Don Sheldon circled overhead. He circled several times and then dropped a message scrawled on a brown paper bag. He wrote that he saw something red over on the slope. Two members of Babcock's team went to investigate. They found a frozen man sitting on a steep slope. He wore a red parka, orange wind pants, and green overboots. He sat facing downhill with one leg extended and the other leg underneath his body. The man looked relaxed. Directly below the first man, they saw a second figure wearing dark clothes. A sleeping bag was wrapped around his shoulders. His legs were in the same position as the first man's, but he was laying back. The men were not roped together, but the MCA climbers wondered if they were in position to hold a rope and belay others below them. The steep slope where the men died descended into a crevasse field. Beyond this danger, though, lay Camp 7. The men who found the bodies speculated that the climbers tried to take a shortcut to their camp. What occurred high on Denali during one of the worst storms in history will remain a mystery. When another party ascended to learn what happened to the climbers, all traces of them had vanished. Who was the man in high camp, and which two climbers sat on the steep slope? Where was John Russell? Did he return to high camp? Did the others fall into crevasses, or did the wind blow them off the mountain? John Papineau, a meteorologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said the week-long storm that battered the climbers on Denali was a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. According to his calculations, gusts at the summit could have reached 300 miles per hour. After the disaster... Too many tried to blame Joe Wilcox, the other surviving climbers, or the Park Service. Mistakes happened, and the unfortunate climbers themselves probably made the biggest blunder by not setting out for the summit earlier in the day. They could have reached the summit and returned to a lower altitude before the storm hit. The storm was not predicted, though. No one knew it was coming. It is easy to second-guess the actions of exhausted climbers suffering the effects of high-altitude sickness. But how could anyone survive 300-mile-per-hour winds on the peak of a 20,000-foot mountain? Those young men experienced a force of nature none of us will ever see. We can only imagine the terror they must have endured during their last few hours or minutes. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read stories about murder and mystery in Alaska, check out my true crime book, Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Also, don't forget to take a look at the show notes for links to the Author Masterminds website and the Readers and Writers Book Club. You will also find links to my books there. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss a single episode of Mysterious, where my fellow authors and I explore mysteries in the world around us.